0: What's up, everybody? I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast, where I am live from the financial summit here in the Dominican Republic, put on by Tone Vays. And shout out to Tone and everybody that put on this event. It was absolutely outstanding. So bear with me. It was a little bit of a road game, but it was an outstanding conversation with David And I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his last name. He pronounces it early on in this episode. So be sure to get it there because, uh, yeah, he's, he's overall a great guest. If you've seen me in spaces, you know David. He's around, and he's putting out some great content with a lot of the same people that I am. So be sure to give him a follow on Twitter. And listen into this conversation. So, we get into David, how he found investing, uh, how he kind of got curious and did some research into investing, how he's sifting through material and other information out there in regards to investing in the macro markets, how the United States is becoming weaker. And we dive into the energy crisis, China and Taiwan. And the Ukraine and Russian conflict as well. And we get an action-packed episode and wrap it up with, lastly, some advice for investors. And as always, please remember, this is not financial advice. Everything David and I say in this podcast is strictly our opinion and not financial advice. I repeat, not financial advice, not financial advice, and strictly for entertainment purposes only. Now, let's get into the show. What's up, everybody? I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast, but first, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Inverse. Inverse is a social and collaborative investment research platform, so investing is getting a lot more open, a lot more accessible because of companies like Robinhood, but Inverse allows increased access to high-quality investment research and discussions. The entire platform is built around top-notch data tools that allows you to research and analyze over 10,000 stocks and ETFs seamlessly in the platform. And in the coming weeks, you'll be able to even link your brokerage account and share your portfolio to give you a little bit more of that credibility when you're talking about those various stocks and ETFs along with the access to clean your portfolio analytics. And yeah, I've been using Inverse for quite some time, and I deeply, deeply enjoy it. I even started a green candle investment group. So if you're looking to join the Inverse platform, that is INRVS.com. You can find me there and join my green candle investment group. So go ahead and do that. That's in the show notes in the description below. And uh, now, let's get into the show. I have a very, very special guest, David. David, I, I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce your last name. So, David, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing excellent. Thank you. Yeah, my my last name is a pretty interesting one. If you're English, it's pronounced almost like mignon, like a filet mignon, like you go out to have a steak. But in French, it's pronounced mignon. It's like an O-O type sound. Very interesting French pronunciation.
0: Yeah, I gotcha. So we've been interacting a little bit here and there because of our buddy three aces on the Tuesday night spaces. And, you know, he's just an animal on those spaces. I maybe we should start calling him three spaces a day. (laughs) You know, he's on those all the time. But uh, yeah, so uh, we have a little bit of interaction, but I don't know too much about you. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background? So uh, I'm primarily out of uh, Canada,
1: Montreal, uh, basically, and uh, from there, I started in the world of finance uh, independently in 2018 with the marijuana legalization, and we all know the big, huge boom uh, stock within marijuana stocks in Canada, especially the furia, the tillery, and all of these types of huge uh, momentum-type uh, plays. Um, and that's where I really initiated my my love of the stock market and economy, and uh and a huge independent, uh, I guess, um, study behind how markets work and how uh, consumer retailers play within the markets, right? Because it's an extremely complicated strategy and approach so that uh, when you do uh, finalize and, I guess, if you will pull the trigger on certain stocks and any other ticker like an ETF, the, the actual understanding behind all of the, the the portfolio strategy or allocation is present and you can necessarily really vet through all of those picks properly
0: gotcha that's awesome stuff so uh tell me i guess a little bit about your upbringing do you think that there's something like in your past that made you a little bit more inclined uh to do some of this research and kind of uh figure out you know more about financial markets or did you just kind of stumble upon it with uh you know the the marijuana stock boom in canada
1: um, so it was it, it, the upbringing is interesting. Hollywood had a huge effect, right? We see the big movies like Margin Call. We see the big movies like Big Short. We and uh, as well Wall Street. Wall Street was uh, the big one. And in that sense, when you're a little kid and you see these brokers uh, go out on uh, the New York uh, Stock Exchange and you're seeing money being made, you, and you're like, "Holy shit!" Excuse the language, but how does that happen? Um, and and then so it, it inspired a little form of, uh, I guess, if you will, inclination to research. Um, outside of like uh, the, the the familial type situation, understanding that through generational wealth, this allows you to really perpetuate yourself further um, outside of, I guess, if you will, certain, if you will, socialized class restrictions. And so if, one, you understand appropriate strategized developments towards investment, then you could really perpetuate yourself in modernized first class societies in ways that I guess you're not offered in third in, in third world countries or even second world countries um considering that one our our monetary power is quite strong u.s dollars right um, most u.s american citizens or canadian citizens don't care about um their income in the sense of i'm getting paid in canadian or u.s dollars and that income is safe when you go across the world to like uh, third world countries second world countries even Turkey, these individuals are worrying every day about, OK, is this paycheck going to be, be able to be able to even substantiate inflationary pressures through the next day? So we're we're, we're fortunate in that sense because we have that luxury and in that reality, it creates a responsibility for us as first world country uh, participants to necessarily take these uh, take these types of, 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 I guess, if you will, acquisitions and or uh, proposition specifically with investments quite seriously.
0: Yeah, and I mean that makes a lot of sense, right? You need to grow your wealth, and and you have that opportunity just being, you know, I guess winning almost the genetic lottery, just being born in a, a first world country and being lucky to to be over here. So, uh, I, I guess tell me a little bit about being an investor in Canada. Uh, Do you kind of look at mostly American companies? I know you mentioned a little bit earlier that the Canadian uh, marijuana stock boom, but um, I always find it interesting because, you know, you guys obviously aren't the same country as the United States, but it's obviously very closely related. Um, You know, you're our neighbors up north. So I'm just kind of curious how you look at it, if it's more so like you analyze companies on the New York Stock Exchange or more so the Canadian side.
1: So it, the the portfolio holds a uh, interesting prospectus in that sense. Um, not to go into uh, full on allocations, but in in, in reality, um, five to ten percent of the portfolio will always be allocated in mineral based and or dividend based uh, payouts towards uh, Canadian uh, assets, and that's where I really love Canada in that sense because. Um, We have resources based companies, we have as well, uh, high energy production based companies where the cash flow is relatively good. The dividend payouts are quite secure and historical payouts have been um, necessarily present for the, the, the history of the company itself. And so when we're thinking I need to have a small little hedge, I need to necessarily have a yield or royalty based payout for a certain percentage of my portfolio. Well, having strong allocated uh, companies in the TSX Adventura or uh, the TSX uh, composites are just necessarily wise because in that sense, you're able to mitigate a lot of, I guess, if you will, downwards pressure in other aspects and continuously have cash flow towards your uh, profile or portfolio. In Canada, we also offer tax-free accounts, uh, TFSAs and RSPs, um, and then while having allocations in these uh, accounts for a Canadian citizen, it allows us to necessarily mitigate a lot of the taxes that could be incurred, especially for a young individual investing in like a TFSA. We are able to mitigate 100% of all taxes incurred on most of the investments that we can have, and there's zero Taxes on withdrawals at a certain uh, depository limit. And so, in that relation, it gives us a really good access to if we ever had a good strategy to roll away those propo- those prof- uh, those profits quite easily because that includes dividend interest and other forms of uh, payouts that would be incurred for the securities held. And so in that light, you don't pay the taxes that you would in usual, uh, uh, in usual accounts and you're able to mitigate a lot of the actual um, risk that the portfolio might hold through, let's say, the devaluation of your actual uh, stock ticker in that sense. Um, and so well, that's why I really enjoy having a, an, a, an appropriately uh, balanced uh, profo- uh, portfolio that has um, ratioed out dividends to certain. Uh, to certain stocks in that sense and or growth sector, value sector, um, tech sector, and then you have your dividend sector and or your royalty based sector so that your portfolio is necessarily well strategized and you're mitigated within the actual pressures of one sector going down and the other sector going up that way. You're you're continuously creating this formal hedge within your investment.
0: Yeah, I got you. That's great. And so uh, you know, on that note, uh, how do you kind of uh, go about, like, researching and analyzing these companies? I know, obviously, we met on Twitter. Uh, how do you kind of view, I guess, the the exchange of ideas as now, you know, with Twitter spaces and you know, platforms like Inverse and all these other platforms, Reddit, Wall Street Pets, whatever. Uh, it seems like the exchanging of ideas on stock investments is, you know, obviously increasing. The vast reach and research is you know almost everywhere and people are kind of uh you know discussing with you know obviously you and I are discussing I'm in the Dominican Republic right now at, at a financial summit you're in Canada and uh we're sitting here discussing stock market ideas so uh how do you how do you view i guess the exchange of ideas do you think it's going to be harder to beat the market because uh you know the accessibility to people is so uh Is so wide right now? Or do you think, like, you know, overall it's just gonna make companies and, uh, you know, investors like a lot better? It's quite a multitude of uh, developments occurring now uh, as
1: for the responsibilities on a retail level. Um, I think that there's a lot of good happening within these spaces in the sense that information and access to information is becoming a lot more easier um, but as well there's a lot more dangers and risk assessment that needs to occur especially when we have Michael Saylors Kathy Woods, we have Jim Cramers and we have uh, we have all these large names that um, I really enjoy going on to George Noble's spaces and having his opinions going and describing these actions or these individuals and their actions across the consumer and the basic retailer I think in the confluence of 2000 16 with the entrances of Robinhood, we see that mass mania and the entrances of new capitalizations from the retailer has dangerous aspects specifically for institutions and how institutions to institutions are going to do their trades. Um, and uh, modern portfolio strategy dramatically shifted during 2016 era. In that sense, once the realization that consumer retail capital is coming into specific sectors in the stock market, um, now I'll bring in Michael Green's perspective. In the sense that uh, we created within this passive investor index fund, uh, always buy the dip type mentality group, um, especially with the 40 k pension plans and all of these other types of structures, a, uh, a, a A quite consolidated and very passive investor that every time capital comes into the uh, into the fund, I should say, um, they are now becoming a buyer. It doesn't matter the fundamentals and or the the necessary price action of that ticker or that index is now that's their obligation to the prospectus. Once capital comes in, they are buying the actual uh, obligated securities that's within the prospectus. Now, once capital is needed and they need to withdraw it, they are now a seller. And it's the same fundamental process. They don't care about the actual underlying value of the asset. They'll sell it. They'll build their interest incurred on it and they'll give you your capitalization required. And I think in this light, it's creating a, a new juxtaposition as to how retailers are going to necessarily invest their capital within the the markets. Um, To to answer your first question as to how I go about my uh, analyzation, I love looking at indexes, picking up the top performers and or the worst performers and understanding market sectors uh, due to the facility of the indexes having already these securities within them and then you're able to create this uh, ratio out performance. And then from there, you're going to be able to potentially self-manage Uh, top performing companies with better valuation, better growth and better cash flowing opportunity than having all of the money invested in a uh, passive fund. And so this is where I think, one, there's a lot of danger at hand in certain spaces and or um, discussions and rhetoric being rendered by top individuals or even uh, uh, investors um, because of I guess, if you will, their biases behind their positions and or even their investment strategy. And it's creating um, a lot of one losses for the basic retailer. We just need to look at the losses of 2020 to 2022 with Bitcoin and retailer affluence. We know that a lot of these individuals are now down on their principal investment. And it's the same thing for the 401ks. We know that pension plans and or uh, the levels of certain pension plans are becoming lower than the initial investment that certain individuals had now even been Hired at when receiving stock uh, stock payback uh, programs. So now I think is is the most important time to understand, realize, and see what uh, what debt is, how margins are being played, and how uh, uh, how essentially earning compressions could have all this formal relations to the valuation of your company and essentially where you're placing your money in. Because in that light, we're, we're going to see a lot of. Uh, a lot more potential compression in that in that relation and in, in the responsibilities for that investor. It's, is it? Do we take the opinions of these top uh, economists? Do we take the opinions of these top portfolio managers that we think are uh, extremely wise and we we don't truly know who they are and their actions outside of the media that we have, like Kathy Wood, Michael Saylor, and all these uh, Jim Cramer. I think are beautiful illustrations of the three individuals that potentially hurt the retailer. And on that point, I'll let you go on.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, like, how do you determine uh, like who to listen to and how are you filtering out good uh, information from bad? Are you like, you know, listening to these people, these economists, or, you know, maybe some other retail investor <clears throat> online or on Twitter, Twitter spaces, what have you, and then, you know, hearing it and then going, and doing your own due diligence on research um, or do you kind of, uh, I guess, use another strategy where where you get those ideas, or you kind of hear from sectors, from people, and uh, kind of do some research that way? Like, how are you kind of diving into, uh, you know, what, what everybody's saying and figuring out what's good information and what's bad?
1: Yeah, it's critical thinking. There is uh, is very important. Um, understanding the the top individuals that would necessarily. <laughs> Be uh, isolated and then from there uh, picked out so that you then suck out all the information. It. it I, I was very fortunate. I hopped onto a space randomly one day because I started using Twitter. I had no idea the developments of uh, of YouTube, Twitter, and all of the social media. The the my usage of YouTube was being an anonymous user, non subscriber, going on uh, these these. Uh, um, I guess, if you will, uh, uh, stock uh, talks and or these large discussions with economists like uh, Milton Friedman and all of these old videos. Right. And then I stumbled upon because uh, the the, the Mo- Noble Zone, specifically George Noble, I stumbled upon a video from him. I saw he was active on Twitter. I saw he had a space on Twitter speaking live. And I'm like, Twitter has individuals that speak live with pertinent information. That's crazy. I could even have discussions with them, speak with them with my, my physical voice. Okay, cool. We're gonna go in and then from there it was it was one experience. I got Completely demolished, and I'll, I'll say that like uh, like uh, George Noble was really kind because I, I have the tendency of rambling and going on some uh, certain tangents because uh, sometimes synthesizing a certain point is is a bit more complicated. Um, and he comes in, he he really was like noble. We're gonna get the point done. You're gonna ask the questions, and we're gonna let Michael uh, Belkin uh, discuss further on to the discussion. And that that was like, okay, it was insightful. It was like, okay, I'm going into a basic meeting at New York, and this guy, this top guy, is is necessarily saying no. Listen, and then from there, develop your opinion afterwards. And I thought that was very um, one. At the same time, you have to have thick skin to take it, but at the, it, it's just like. Okay, really illustrative. You humble yourself. That youthful arrogance that we all have, that youthful ignorance that we all have needs to be corrected. So you find those those George Nobles, those Michael Greens, those Michael Cantros, and you understand the depictions and the modeling behind them, and/or you try to understand the modeling behind them. Because I won't, I, I won't try to uh, to claim that I understand Michael Cantrell's modeling. And I'm here only trying to depict his ISM and PMI uh, predictions and his Hope uh, model. And at, at that time, at that time, when you have these new confluences of information um, on a personal level, like on your mental note, we all have certain ways in, of modeling information, and it. needs needs to have that percentage allocation, like a portfolio to say, I need that room to adapt. I need to be able to grow with the the mental pool that I'm now entering in. And in that sense, it's, it's really like isolating those mentors, finding out the pertinent information, seeing why it's pertinent, then from there, deconstructing it, going in like for, for 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 example, Michael Green brought me to towards Edward Prescott, towards Robert E Hall, and towards Robert, uh, yeah, towards Robert Hall as well. And all of these individuals were, were top economists, and now it, it perpetuates my understandings of economy, economic models, and other formal types of, uh, of developments. And I am I'm, I'm infinitely grateful for that. It's like that that connection was pure, and I think in that relation. It's a new way to bring it back to what you were saying that allows retail investors right outside of this huge information bubble that we have to interact with investors, top investors, and try to, I guess, if you will strategize your portfolio in accordance to that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it, it brings like a unique perspective, right? So, I mean, I'm not in in the financial markets or anything like that, like professionally, but I think I've learned a lot just strictly from, you know, being in those Twitter spaces, interacting with people, you know, you've come up on my Tuesday night spaces, those ones get, you know, great. And just like a lot of those people that you said, they all come come in and discuss so many different macro ideas, not only globally, but, you know, maybe specific to the United States. And so on that note, like how are you viewing the United States right now? I mean, obviously inflation is running rampant and uh, there's quite a bit of problems going on and it seems like the United States is becoming a lot weaker. So how do you think we even got here Uh, just based on like, you know, your knowledge and a lot of the conversations that you're having?
1: So I I definitely think that uh, it's not just because of Russian and Ukraine interaction and the Russian incursion. Um, obviously, through the misguidedness and the strategic approach from the United States and the Federal Reserve and the Biden administration, we see that the sanctions have been misguided. We see that the actual turnarounds towards it have brought more perpetuity to Russia. The ruble is now at a stronger level than once it first began at at the the Russian-Ukraine incursion. We understand in in that relation that it, it Inflationary pressures as well have been building throughout 2008 and throughout 2011, specifically when we look at and I'm gonna bring back Robert E. Hall into play. The long slump. He had written a paper and describing um, the slumpish areas within economical activity um, within the economy, and by all progressions of historical data and current uh, developments within economical modes after 2019 uh, to 2020, even before COVID, even before the Russian incursion, there were signs that the economical slump was occurring in the sense of the access to capital was restricting, and it was just a, a, a affluence of necessarily the time of uh, of effect that it was going to necessarily happen. Um, the war exacerbated these effects. The uh, compounding of COVID and the shutdown of the supply chain exacerbated inflationary pressures. And now, in that sense, we're we're seeing a expedited inflationary time because of these formal the developments. One, we had a pandemic, and now two, we have the first formal war uh since nineteen forties in the Eurozone uh inside these countries. And, and that's quite substantial in the sense that uh one, we know that through the sanctions like I had just mentioned, Russia is strengthening their position. No Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 have uh have restricted flows throughout the Eurozone, throughout Germany Germany is going through one of the worst recessionary periods it's ever had. There is continuous rolled out blackouts, brownouts throughout the grids because energy cost is too high. And the, the aspects towards what's occurring in the United States is only compounding simply because of the relations to these energy costs and the actual restrictions of Russian oil coming into play within the United States. When we're looking at oil in itself and our refineries, we know that ESG policies and humanitarian policies are extremely restrictive towards the refiners down in Utah, Texas, and across the states uh, across the United States. Whilst well, when we look at Saudi Arabia, China and Russia, we know that these humanitarian and ESG type policies, especially administratively, aren't on the same precedence. And so when, in correlation to their abilities to supply and or uh, create aggregate supply and demand throughout oil structure, uh, oil developments, um, they have an easier time to mitigate these types of developments. That's not to say that China is not going through a recessionary period currently. We know that they're going through a housing crisis. We know that they're having less active automotive utilities and less usage for other formal uh, uh, goods and products. Um, but we're seeing as well a confluence of third-party productions and diesel, uh, diesel-generated energy due to uh, energy restrictions as well in China. But when we're looking at in the conversation of BRICS and uh, Russia and all of the BRICS nations, um, we're seeing a lot, a lot of new conversations at hand, specifically on the contracts that are being administered between uh, China and Russia. Um, so we're seeing. I would potentially claim war being fought on new theaters. It's not necessarily a foot soldier war. It's an economical war that we're going to play. It's going to be a long slump. And I propose that um, these types of affluences weren't necessarily weren't created by these issues we're living, but simply exacerbated. Inflationary pressures are quite uh, compounding in uh, the United States, and in that sense, the relations to the Jones Act, and that was enacted 100 years ago, and the complications behind how actual oil production and oil refiners are able to ship oil across the United States, is creating a new level of pressures within uh, the United States. And so, in all of what I just said, I think one, we can we can presume inflationary pressures just because of energy costs is going to increase. And then we can get into the housing, we can get into the 401k, the pension prices, the, uh, the, the looming student loan forbearances. And then we can even as well get into how your basic retail consumer um, is now having more and more inabilities to pay off a $1,000 emergency payment. And so when we're looking at debt ratios across the board, they're increasing, and the abilities for, for let's just say, hypothetical uh, uh, auto loans to be continue being paid is, is decreasing, and auto loan forbearance is increasing. Obviously, when you take into account all of these debt compressions on a singular uh, total aggregate uh, equity standing, sure, one out of the other isn't bad, but when we're taking into account all of these confluences and all of these pressures, we know that, recessionary times are, are pretty precedent and 2022 is unprecedented time specifically for our generation we haven't seen these types of periods outside of 2008 and 2008 was relatively a, a expedited period in the sense that uh, on an economical time frame 10 years after 2008, we saw new uptickings and the S&P and all the other forms of uh, indexes have only been outperforming since then. Um, and so it, 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 it's quite an interesting and complicated time, to, to say the least.
0: Yeah, I mean, exactly. You went over quite a bit of stuff, but I mean, I think it's all correlated, right? So. Uh, you know at the end of the day a lot of people look at the the inflationary pressures from the covid lockdowns and then you know they increase money printing but obviously the problem is now persisted and is is significantly bigger than that right so we're seeing the china or the ukraine russia uh, conflict causing a lot of energy crisis throughout europe and the united states strictly because of esg policies um and in other avenues where you know it it seems like policymakers are kind of shooting themselves in the foot, uh, as far as, as that. So do you kind of see that the ESG, uh, policy and the ESG craze is going to, uh, kind of, I guess, lessen, um, you know, lessen restrictions and and everything like that, just because of like what's going on here. Or do you think that, uh, you know, a lot of these, uh, policymakers are going to kind of dig their foot in and, you know, cause some serious problems, uh, Yeah, like so. so How do you see we get uh, see us finding our way out of this like quote unquote energy crisis that we're starting to dive into?
1: So I'm gonna like to quote I'm gonna quote Doctor Anas here. This is an individual that I absolutely um, love. Doctor Anas is uh, somebody both Brandon and I uh, listen to quite often on Spaces. He's uh, with Three Aces and he has. One of the most pertinent analysis across uh, the oil market and and other markets as well, the geopolitical and geo economical. Um, and he had mentioned that it was very interesting that during the Saudi Biden meeting, um, that one there was no discussions as to oil. He had assumed that oil was going to be one of the most precedent first first main topics within the boards of discussion, but in, in reality. It was LGBTQ, and it was more along the lines of, uh, of, of sorry, humanitarian programs and ESG programs. Um, and, and so in that light, we're seeing that our position on a political basis is weakening because of these humanitarian policies. Um, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't uh, assume these politicians and these individuals would change their populist-type uh, populist type, uh, uh rhetoric and or uh mentality within their proposals to necessarily shift within our economical times it should happen we're living in 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 war times now and i'm going to quote dunberg here where he proposes if ever we wanted to mitigate the situation appropriately we would we would act like appropriate times that we would like in war and we would bring back indices we would bring back our refiners on top for a small time and we put back a bit on the ESG humanitarian type mentality, and we would allow ourselves on an economical point to strengthen and build back from a position of strength in that sense. And so in, in relation to ESG and, and all of the huge humanitarian developments, Christian Lagarde, the head of the ECB, is, is one, a huge humanitarian advocate, has very little economical backgrounds. And so it, it's a very interesting pick as well to be a, the head of an ECB. Uh, and, and and so we're seeing the IMF, ECB and the United States all have these huge humanitarian programs and restrictions within their actual exporting realms. The effects are going to be continually seen. I think the politicians have their agendas and I, I can't really presume why they would change it for any other types of developments because we're seeing these recessionary times. I think they have it cleared and they're going to continuously push down their agenda. It's pretty simple in that sense. Sorry about that.
0: No, you're good. I I I, I get it a hundred percent. And uh yeah, so I mean on that note too, you know, you're seeing a lot of like more, I guess you're saying, instead of like boots on the ground, uh war that way, it's more of like an economic sort of war. And so we're we're seeing now that everything's kind of lining up where China is about to do the same thing to Taiwan that Russia did with the Ukraine. So how do you see that, I guess, uh, kind of playing out and affecting the economy? Because, you know, one thing that I'm really worried about is we've been having a massive chip shortage. And Taiwan Semiconductors is one of the biggest uh, chip manufacturers globally. And uh, obviously, they're based in Taiwan. So, uh, you know, do you see this kind of persisting and causing, uh, you know, one, we'll have like an energy crisis, and then two, after the energy crisis, we'll have, a, you know, just a persisting chip shortage. And so everything in this growing digital world is just going to slowly, slowly, like, start to start to fade.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's an interesting uh, position now, especially considering the blockades and or the military operations that are now developed by China and Taiwan currently that uh, started around August 4th. Um, if, if this is again, another quote from Doomberg, if I would propose a formal embargo on top of a country, I would uh, fake a, a military uh, action in that sense. And that's what we're seeing across Taiwan and in, in the relations that there are there are naval ships that necessarily are placed across the island, restricting flows of import and export. And essentially it's going to be a very interesting conversation to be played when taking into into relation the Chips Act, now we're we're creating an even bigger problem, right? We're having roughly 80 billion dollars of tax paying uh, tax paying money uh, go out for incentives and tax benefits for certain companies within the Chips Act, right? And one of the big Realities is a lot of R and D is happening within the United States, and we have a lot of firms doing a lot of R and D specifically for semiconductors. Um, it, the laboratory complexities behind semiconductors take roughly a ten year for a technician to have uh, adequate competence to necessarily produce good semiconductors and have a good line of production. Hence, why we're seeing Taiwan and China having uh, confluence and strength within these positions due to their chain line uh, and to. Due to their abilities of producing these technicians. Um, in the in the reality, when we're looking at uh, what we're proposing, is in that aspect we're saying uh, back in the '90s we were saying we're going to export our indices from the United States, and we're going to reduce emissions within the United States. And this chip back bill is contrary almost towards their humanitarian policies because now it's proposing on an inverse we're going to rebring in our uh, actual uh, inventory and we're going to increase emissions due to these formal developments that we might have within these CHIP Act. But in reality the, the, the hurting aspect is the $80 billion of subsidies that could go out to outsourced companies and these outsourced companies would then be inheritable for these tax benefits and the actual cash flow of this tax paying money going for this chip Act might not even be sourced and flowed throughout u.s companies and this is where it becomes slightly dangerous right
0: yeah exactly and i think like you know you know the chips act uh can help but It'll be like, like you said, like a long-term kind of play where, over time, it'll it will help. I think like there's going to be an initial shortage, uh, you know, coming up, and we're still seeing supply chain issues persist, and uh, yeah, and and we're seeing increased cost. So I think the Chips Act is maybe a start, but at the same time, it, it's it causing a, an, an immense amount of money printing because where is all this tax money coming from, um, you know, and uh, all these new policies? It, it just seems like everything's going from bad to worse. Um, So how do you see, I guess, uh, this playing out? Do you see like uh, it being a short-term recession or do you see maybe a a longer term or even, uh, you know, us kind of falling into a a global depression?
1: So um, it's really the elasticity of the job market and the elasticity of employment. Um, So either inelasticity or elasticity of employment and unemployment. Um, the supply structure uh, and demand structure on an aggregate level, we understand through these long slumps, um, don't necessarily see massive decrease in, 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 I guess, if you will, demand in that sense or capitalization. It, it's mainly a reversion of that capitalization from one indice to the other. Uh, on a simpler form, why we see apparel necessarily decrease in value and meets increase in value is because on an aggregate we know that the supply of our apparel is increasing and the demand is decreasing and the same interim uh, relation is occurring for meat products and or other forms of food. Like we know that the demand is increasing and potential production for this is decreasing. And so and when we're looking at the global picture on an aggregate, um, we, the chain and the supply chain necessarily will have this formal shifting of inflationary and deflationary type assets. And this is where it becomes quite interesting and complicated, because in massive inflationary times, there are as well massively deflationary assets and or deflationary things that are going to occur within the economy. Um, And in in that interim, depending on how and this is very dependent on the Fed, right, because we know currently um, within within the models, it's the key, the key way that we're going to combat this is through interest rates. Um, Now, to go back into quoting Michael Green, I think that he stated it quite well when he was saying if we were going to act in any times, it would have been back in 2021, 2020, when economical periods was a bit more prosperous and the Fed had more maneuvers to necessarily interact within the economy. Due to reactive policies now, we understand that the Fed is is really more uh, data-based reaction and they're, they're, they're potentially limiting themselves within, uh, within how they could play it off. And if ever uh, economical circumstances were to increase, well, the Fed would have to compound their decision-making in, 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 in relation. And so that's where it becomes quite um, dangerous because they, they are now a Fed of a dual mandate. We know that they potentially brought one of those mandates down, meaning employment, and it's price control that's now into play price stability and in that relation, it's it's creating more pressures because through the one, the QT that we were having earlier, we know that it's hurting the economy. And on on the level of like non neutrality and non neutral monetary policies, um, the effects of these since 1970s are still being regulated within the equilibrium model in the sense that value structures and different types of, uh, of I guess, if you will, debt compression being allowed in margins uh, for certain companies that necessarily construct this huge value um, come into play. And so long story short, when you're taking to all of this into account, uh, it, it's a complicated story. Um, we're going to see new developments within uh, within the economy. And I think that the next phases is going to be, uh, is going to illustrate and is going to be a page for the books. Um, in the next five to two years, a lot of economists are going to be studying this period and trying to analyze the actual effects on, on, on an economical model um, because it, it's quite dramatic. We know currently within the inelasticity you know, of the job market for every three jobs on hand, there's one person necessarily offering and getting into it uh, or proposing to to work for that position. And so it, it's it's continuous pressures downwards on on a lot of sectors to make uh, to finalize the point. Yeah, it's a, it's a long story that's not going to conclude itself very easily.
0: So how do you see the Fed playing this out? Right. Because, you know, like you and, my, and Michael Green have said, is. Like the best case scenario would have been the Fed raising rates earlier on uh, to kind of combat these inflationary pressures. But now they're doing it. And it seems like obviously it's hurting the economy. And I think like at the end of the day, it's the uh, Fed's in between a rock and a hard place because. You know, they need to raise interest rates to combat inflation, but that's also going to come at a cost where, you know, unemployment needs to go up, access to capital is going down, and it's going to cause some some short-term hurt for sure. So do you see the Fed kind of continuing to raise rates over the course of the rest of this year, or do you see a, kind of a pullback coming?
1: Complicated. Um, it, it, it's a duality. You have to play the, the relations as to why – why either action is going to be beneficial. And you have to presume whether both are going to be interplayed. I think um, it's valid to be thinking on both interims. What if the Fed pivots? How would a Fed pivot occur? Um, And what if the Fed continues on their pressures? I think uh, if we're continuing and looking at different historical periods during like Paul Volcker era in 1979 and we look at how aggressive Volcker was and how reactive the economy was at the time, um, and how Jerome Powell in the last three months, specifically in two quarters, has been sl- instigating the name more and more. And, and to, to, uh, to quote Michael Green again, potentially, hopefully I'm not misquoting this one, is uh, playing his mini Paul Volcker, right? And I think that's where uh, it becomes quite interesting because um, in either way, in either how the Fed is going to react, there's going to be... Uh, causing effects on a downward pressure to the economy um either in real yields with bonds we can we, we haven't even touched on bonds but I think that that's an extremely important thing um, and then either in the actual developments as to a fed pivot and the actual QT that could occur and the effects on uh, commodities and other forms of value structures in that sense and so on both levels like both need to be appropriately calculated and strategized and um, due to the the inabilities of us understanding how the Fed is going to react I think it's it's a reactive based policy that they're having here. And it's creating this uh, extreme attention for us now. Like, why are we, uh, as many people are mentioning, all of all having this huge attention on the Fed? Like, historically, we've never paid attention to the Fed as much as we've paid attention to the Fed today. There's a there's a reasoning for that. And I I won't speculate as to why.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's maybe more so because of the access to information In my opinion, like, you know, we're we're being able to kind of uh, go back and and look at everything that they say and and see like these conversations that are recorded, people getting up and kind of, you know, doing, uh, looking at the takes like reverse, right? Looking at um, them from, you know, a few weeks later, months down the road, years down the road uh, to see like if they're actually held true to their word, in my opinion. And so, um, you know, with all that, right, so we're seeing heavy hits on the economy, whether it's energy, you know, everything, everything that you listed before student loans, housing, all that kind of stuff. So how are you positioning yourself to kind of be prepared for this scenario, right? Because we've seen a massive drawdown already. So do you uh, are you kind of being more conservative when it comes to your investment strategy? Uh, Are you, uh, you know, looking at financials a little bit more closely? Like, how are you going about positioning yourself to be prepared for something like this,
1: due diligence, due diligence, due diligence. It's uh, it's always doing your due diligence. Fundamentals will always dictate, uh, dictate technicals in that sense. And in, in that interim, understanding the uh, the actual macro and micro type developments that you're within, understanding whatever sector you're investing in, whether it's tech, mining, or even uh, any commodity-based type sector, you you want to really canalize understand the players, and then from there, understand the balance sheets, understand why and how these values are being structured. And personally, I really enjoy deconstructing the actual earnings report, finding yourself a the top company that you, you have foremost convictions within uh, in that indice, and then from there, really rebuilding it and understanding over it then from there latching out and then really deconstructing all the sec- the all the performers within that sector through the earnings report and then trinkling it into like, okay, this is how the players are moving. These are how the performance are. This is the average uh, level of performance in this sector for each of these companies. So if we're taking Tesla, Ford, Nikola, or Nikola is a good example. I'm using that as a joke. And Neo and all of these other types of uh, developments, um, you you understand that like, okay, these are how these companies are playing. These are how I should evaluate. This is how I should think about it. Where do I place my cash, right? And a lot of players now, and I think it's quoting three aces, are in the go, go, go mentality and don't have the patience to necessarily vet any formal indices or sector. Um, And I don't like to necessarily talk singular stock because I think it's more important you understand the sector then you can isolate singular stock, understanding the fundamentals of that sector as well.
0: Yeah. So you've been very generous <laughs> with your time. We're coming to you from a early Saturday morning here. So I really appreciate everything you you've brought in the insight and talking macro over this coffee, uh, you, know, you know, this morning. But uh, I'll wrap it up with uh, one final question. So what advice do you have for a new investor who's getting into the game like right now, who's seeing everything kind of crashing and burning and uh, maybe it's a little tentative to dip their toe in and start investing?
1: Patience is a virtue. Look at the greats. Um, understand the plays as to how these individuals are presenting their strategies. Thinking about these recessionary times, history as well is a great lesson. Like don't don't repeat it, right? And and obviously we're not necessarily going to have the same effects as to history, but understanding the mental states that mania and historical places played for investors in that sense is important i'll bring it back to the 16th 17th century isaac newton lost his wealth and i have a uh, post on my twitter for this uh, but he lost his wealth completely in uh, in his one one of his ventures because his friend made a fortune and he was maniac about his investments and i think we need to learn from the great man that invented calculus himself he he as well could lose much much of his wealth through investing and so patience is a virtue
0: all right, David, thank you so much for your time. Why don't you tell people where they can find you and what you got going on?
1: So right now, I'm going to start off a, a YouTube channel. Um, it's going to be under this, na- this moniker. And then uh, the, under the same moniker, uh, I have a Twitter account. And that's really where I started. And that's, that's all
0: I have. Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll tweet out when you start that YouTube channel. So be sure to let me know. And yeah, I'll have his Twitter handle in the show notes here. So David, thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate the time.